we introduce to you to At The Movies, Sarah Watt and Doug Dillerman, who'll be holding the fort for Simon Morris for the next three weeks. Welcome to the programme, you two. Kia ora, thank you. Pleased to be here. Doug, I thought I'd start with you. Your interest in film, when did it start? It started um, at the end of university, actually, a screening of Hal Hartley's Trust. Uh, before then, I was just into music, and then since then, I've... Um, gone deep into it. I spent about 10 years watching movies and then I came over to New Zealand and went to film school and uh, started editing television and making my own movies and I've kept writing about them all along for Lumiere Reader, Panagraph Punch and the spinoff and I've also done a podcast with Jacob Powell, Best Worst Podcast. Sarah, was it one movie like for Doug changed everything for you? It's funny, isn't it? I I think back and I know that E.T. was seminal. uh, But a few years later on, Silence of the Lambs, which still remains uh, my my most significant film, and then The Piano in 1993. So, yeah, certainly there have been moments that led me towards this track. Uh, And then for the best part of the last eight years, I've been uh, one of the principal film reviewers at the Sunday Star Times and done a spot of radio work. And it's only sort of enhanced my love and, uh, and breadth of knowledge around film. Do you agree or more often than disagree in terms of how you feel about films? Well, Doug will, Doug will disagree <laughs> on this, but for the most part, I feel as though we um, agree. Well, we certainly agree on the films that are important to me. Maybe that's what matters. <laughs> I think we we have a, sh- a strong core of agreement and uh, then we separate in very different areas in certain fields of interest. Um, you're more excited about police procedurals and mm. things like that, whereas I tend to go to the weird corners of the uh, film festival, for instance, the mm. uh, Forbidden Rooms and the four-hour Filipino films and what have you. But I like the mainstream things as well. So I think the interesting thing about what we're about to do, Lynn, is that usually Doug and I will have discussed our views on a film, and in this instance I'm genuinely curious to hear what he thinks of all three of these. So we've tried to keep this spoiler-free from ourselves as much as anybody else. So uh, I'm looking forward to hearing how much we agree in this instance. Well, the first film up is House with a Clock in Its Walls. Uh, So you're going to do a a plot summary for us. Sure. Lewis is, as in all good classic children's stories, orphaned at the age of 10 and sent to live in New Zebedee, Michigan, with the uncle he has never met. Jack Black here plays Uncle Jonathan Barnevelt, a mysterious kimono-wearing avuncular type who lives in a large house that the nastier children at Lewis's new school coin the slaughterhouse. With the help of the kindly next-door neighbour, Florence Zimmerman, here played by a typically wonderful Kate Blanchett, Lewis must settle into his new home, make new friends, and ultimately solve the mystery of the sinister ticking that emanates from the house's walls. Well, before we find out what you both thought of it, here's a trailer from the film. Hello. You're Lewis, I presume. You'll see. Things are quite different here. There's a clock in the walls. We don't know what it does, except something horrible. So, you've told Lewis everything? Well, not everything. 
OK, Doug, well, there's a plot summary. We'll find out from Sarah what she thought of it at the, uh, in a moment. But what about you? I went in really trepidatious, and from about the first two minutes, I was actually quite besotted with the film. I mean, I know it's a kid's film, and I'm a bit of a grown-up kid myself, but as soon as the dialogue kicks in, you can tell there's a really sharp intelligence behind the writing. Um, there's a really lovely tone that recalls the um, films that I loved growing up of early 80s horror films that were for kids, but just kind of pushed the envelope a little bit. Jack Black and um, Kate Blanchett, I think, complement each other tremendously as the two uh, adult leads in the film. Uh, it's very much a throwback, and even in style, I found it um, it wasn't very busy photographically. It would let the um, set direction and production design and the tremendous performances uh, do the heavy lifting. And um, it's certainly not without its flaws. It's um, I felt like the pacing perhaps had a bit of uh, lumpiness in the middle with a bit more dialogue scenes and might uh, lose some of the younger viewers. But overall, I was pleasantly surprised and wrapped. I thought there was certainly enough in it that those looking for uh, a film to take their uh, children to this uh, school holidays would be quite uh, pleasantly surprised at the amount that was there for adult viewers. And you laughed through the whole thing, I noticed. <laughs> yes. I mean, the thing is, we she says that we didn't uh, consult beforehand, but we can't uh, help but notice each other reacting or, in Sarah's case, mm. not laughing at yeah. the... Uh, <laughs> Look, I wasn't not laughing, laughing in a, a cold-hearted, this film is dreadful sort of way, but I did notice that you chuckled a lot, and I thought, oh, that's interesting. And Sarah, so, you spoke to some of the, the target audience, if you like, the, the kids. What did they make of it? Yeah, I did, because I thought that um, a lot of the elements of the film actually, for me, were quite dark and sinister. And I know that's the way we go with young people movies. I get that. But I thought, oh, there's occultism in here and there's a, uh, there are some terribly sinister mechanical dolls. Were these kids in the audience as potentially freaked out as I was? So I, I collared some afterwards and I asked them their views. Um, very articulate little 10 and 12-year-old, both of whom who had seen Christopher Robin. So their first thing was, well, we liked it better than Christopher Robin because Christopher Robin was predictable and you knew what was going to happen, whereas this film was suspenseful. And I said to them, were you um, scared at all? And uh, they said that bits of it were potentially scary, um, but no, they felt that it was OK. So I thought, well, there you go, Sarah. Did you agree with Doug on the lumpy pacing? Yes, First two-thirds, I thought, oh, this is really fun, and I loved the production design, and I loved the costuming, and I thought it was beautiful to look at, and I, I agree about the dialogue. The witty barbs between Jack Black and Kate Blanchett's characters are delightful. But then, to be honest, the last third, I was kind of bored, and I didn't really care. Kyle MacLachlan is desperately underused, or if he is used, he's just not used well. I think this is also a common problem that you have, though, with, I mean, even the Avengers movies or any mm. sort of action movies is once it gets into the energy blobs flying every place and the and the giant stakes you know it all and it, understandably it all becomes a bit more predictable that mm. it's you know I'm a bit rising action and you're mm. you're much more interested in the character moments leading up to it and and I generally am too um, but I thought there were some genuinely thrilling moments in the third act and I also felt like there were some genuinely moving moments in some of there's a scene in particular between Jack Black and Kate Blanchett um, where they talk about the challenges of becoming a parent and mm. Jack Black being suddenly this character who's never thought about raising a child in his life who has this 10-year-old thrust into it and is woefully inequipped to mm. face the challenges just of parenthood. just chocolate chip cookies at, at, Yeah, you at can will. do what you want. Yes, it's it's right. quite a children's fantasy in some ways. Yeah. And, um, and there's this really steely emotional 
moment between uh, the two of them that, you know, shows that there's a real depth to the um, performances and characterization mm. and story. That's, mm. But, you know, in moving between those moments, I think there's there's a bit of challenge. But for director Eli Roth, who's probably the only person who's made a children's movie and also made a film that's banned in New Zealand with Hostile Part 2, mm. um, there's certainly reasons that parents could... Have some reservations. Plenty of reservations. If they they did their research and saw that basically Roth's career is unremittingly horror films and torture porn, then, yeah, you might well be worried. And to that end, he's quite restrained, I think, and he has done a um, a fairly good job of making this a, a, a palatable children's film. Right, change of pace, RBG. Doug, what's this all about? Uh, Well, it's a documentary about uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who's consistently made legal history over the years from a series of Supreme Court cases that expanded gender rights to uh, 1993, coming to sit on the Supreme Court herself. And even though she's now an octogenarian, she's not only a hero for millions, but she's also rather unexpectedly the source of countless Internet memes. And finally, she has a film that uh, takes in the swath of her rather unexpected history. I ask no favor for my sex. All I ask of our brethren is that they take their feet off our necks. We welcome today Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. She's become such an icon. Do you mind signing this copy? I am 84 years old, and everyone wants to take a picture with me. (laughs) Notorious RBG. Yeah, yeah. When you come right down to it, the closest thing to a superhero I know. Ruth Bader Ginsburg changed the way the world is for American women. I became a lawyer when women were not wanted by the legal profession. Thousands of state and federal laws discriminated on the basis of gender. She was following in the footsteps of the battle for racial equality. She wanted equal protection for women. Men and women are persons of equal dignity and they should count equally before the law. She captured for the male members of the court what it was like to be a second-class citizen. The point is that the discriminatory line almost inevitably hurts women. I did see myself as kind of a kindergarten teacher in those days because the judges didn't think sex discrimination existed. Well, Sarah, what were your impressions of this? You have legal training yourself, of course, Mm. so maybe you had a, a different take? Yeah. I love documentary as a genre, and I tend to love all the documentaries that I see. And I, and I would say, first of all, sort of uh, formally, this is a reasonably straightforward documentary. It's got lots of talking heads interviews, fantastic archive footage, audio transcripts from the court decisions that perhaps the legal nerd in me found particularly interesting. So, I mean, it's, it's pretty standard as far as the, the composition of a documentary goes. But interestingly for me, and I haven't mentioned this to Doug yet, I found myself unexpectedly moved more than once. Um, And I didn't anticipate this, not at all, because I personally, luckily, have never knowingly felt discriminated against on the basis of my gender. And while I do completely see the incredible impact that RBG had over the course of, what, 70-odd years, I'd sort of expected this to be more a history exercise than something directly relevant to my 21st century Mm. self. And all of a sudden... This was reminiscent for me of um, a surge of sort of unexpected recognition and feminist energy that powered through me when I watched Wonder Woman earlier this year. 
I just sort of found myself enthralled with every word of the court judgment and her dissenting opinions, so beautifully articulated by this tiny firebrand, and I just found myself wanting to clap and shout, you go, girl, or something <laughs> equally appropriate. And there was a spontaneous applause at the end of mm. our Sunday night eight-something session, which I rarely see outside of the film festivals, and so it's obviously... Touching people. Yeah, um, which is... Look, I I did not like it as a film. Mm. I, I think there's two aspects to any documentary. One is the documentary subject and one is how well it's made. And I don't think it's a well-made film for lots of reasons. You've alluded to the talking heads. Um, 95% of it could work just fine as an audio book. The music's not good. It's repetitive. Wow. Um, Tell and, us what and, you really yeah, think. Yeah, well, well, I'm getting there. Um, <laughs> and I also don't think Ruth Bader Ginsburg is the greatest of subjects. You know, mm. we repeatedly hear about how withdrawn she is and you know she she doesn't give up a lot and her greatest accomplishments have been behind the closed doors of the Supreme Court so where other documentaries might dwell on an extensive visual history we're often um, forced to have minute-long scenes of a camera moving around an empty uh, judicial chamber with words appearing on screen or perhaps 20-second zooms into stills I read, I read an interview with the filmmakers about why they chose to do that, and you're absolutely yeah. right. They're dealing with audio footage, which is at the crux of what the, the whole story's about. And they thought, well, look, for one thing, it's articulate enough that we don't really need to sort of subtitle mm. it on, on film, but they wanted to sort of uh, make those words accessible visually and uh, orally, I guess. And I, I found that really compelling to read and watch uh, yeah. and listen. And, ha and having um, eviscerated the film, let me now <laughs> walk some of this back, because what I think um, the experience of going to see a, a feature documentary does is gives you space around these ideas. And you can say, well, it's basically an illustrated Wikipedia article. But you're not at home. You have 90 to 100 minutes in a cinema mm. to sit with these ideas and see how they reverberate with you. And in a perverse way, because it's not a very interestingly made film, it does give you more space to see to focus. Where, where it resonates mm. and how... Um, it sits with you. And for me, um, one of the places where it really resonates is in the area of, you know, what it means to make social change. And it's fascinating that Ruth Bader Ginsburg is not a firebrand. Her um, mother told her to be a lady and to never be angry. And so she instead crafted a very clever strategy over her years as a lawyer to take cases regarding gender equality that weren't necessarily the most glamorous or obvious. She took a case early on, Frontiero versus Richardson, which was on behalf of a man mm. who wanted to get Social Security payments for parenting, which were permitted for women but not men. Mm. And um, Which is I, an incredibly canny decision, as they say in the film, because she's working for gender equality rather than female uprising. And, and that's a very clever way to go, particularly in a patriarchal institution uh, where you're trying to compel predominantly male judges to think and feel a certain way. Indeed. And it also seems one that is out of step with the conventional wisdom of nowadays, where there's a lot of short-term outrage, a lot of hashtag canceled, a mm, lot of mm. You know, it is just a very much an outrage, immediate response driven culture. And in terms of the lasting social change we can make, I think we need to look back to the example of what she's done and ask ourselves, look, are we and I identify myself as 
part of the left in this case. Um, but, you know, you can come at it from whatever strategy you want. But regardless, are we moving towards a long-term change or are we just venting our anger and not getting anywhere? I'd love to sit around the dinner table with you guys after a while <laughs> <laughs> film watching. That's, that's RBG. Right, don't worry, he won't get far on foot. Doug, I think you're going to do the honours for us. What's this all about? Uh, yeah, well, it's the latest by uh, Gus Van Sant, and it's an adaptation of the uh, memoir of quadriplegic cartoonist John Callahan, who's uh, from Portland, Oregon, and he's played by Joaquin Phoenix, and it showcases both his penchant for uh, taboo-busting artwork and his struggle with alcohol abuse. Here's a sense of it from the trailer. The last day that I walked, I woke up without a hangover. Ah, pretty groovy day, huh? I knew I had an hour or so of grace before the... Withdrawal symptoms set in. And that was it. Keep them coming, bro. Dexter had mistaken the light pole for an exit and slammed into it at 90 miles an hour. How are things going here, John? I can't move. Yeah, it doesn't sound like it's going too well. People say we got it made. I'm Donnie, and I'm an alcoholic. My day has been pretty good until I came in here and saw all of you. <laughs> Maybe you were weakened so you could become strong. Something really profound just happened to me, man. I don't expect you. That's really funny. It's you. I draw these for a living, but people get mad at me because the subject matter. It's offensive. We all have led in our non-sober periods somewhat chaotic lives. But then again, you're not to blame. You're a very special person. You're such a pain in the ass, John. I surprised myself by really, really enjoying this film. Now, you used the word trepidatious earlier, Doug. I have to admit, uh, Lynn, having said that we have not discussed these films beforehand, Doug did see this film before me, and I knew that he wasn't enamoured of it. So I thought, oh, I probably won't like it either, but I'll go. And I really enjoyed it on several grounds. And I guess first and foremost, the performances. For me, everybody has been raving about Jonah Hill's performance as Donnie, the uh, post-addicted leader of a, a fantastic group, of like an AA group that he has in his sumptuous mansion. And Jonah Hill is fantastic. And Joaquin Phoenix, honestly, for me, is somebody who can pretty much do no wrong. So I love the fact that Joaquin is able to uh, embody any character that he portrays, from the unchosen son in Gladiator to Johnny Cash to even Jesus. Although I have to say, in, in Mary Magdalene, Jesus was probably as close as I've got with Joaquin Phoenix to uh, finding it a little bit of a stretch to suspend my disbelief. But as John Callahan, a real-life person who, if you'll forgive my maligning the dead, could have come off as incredibly irritating, um, I just felt that Phoenix manages to imbue him with pathos and realism, which sort of not justifies but accounts for his alcoholism and his self-destructive behaviour without turning me off. And I'm not big on addic addiction dramas as a rule. Mm. And, uh, I, and neither I, am I. And I found the whole thing really entertaining and, um, and I was, yeah, I was enthralled all the way through. Now, the performances are, I would say, with an exception or two, the strong point of this film. Um, you know, we've just seen Joaquin Phoenix in the film festival and You Were Never Really Here, which is coming back, where he's a giant ripped 
incoherent uh, force of nature seeking revenge and is completely unrecognizable in this film. And, uh, you know, he has demonstrated that depth over the years. Jonah Hill hasn't demonstrated that Mm. depth, which is perhaps why he's a revelation. And even some of the smaller performances, I was really struck by Beth Ditto, who people will know as the lead singer of The Gossip, who plays a a Southern member of this recovery group. And Jack Black, again, Mm. who showcases both his comedic side as the driver who delivers John Callahan indirectly to his wheelchair, who then Callahan catches up with many years later and gives Jack Black, you know, what in another film might be his Oscar scene, which uh, Jonah Hill will get more attention for. Yes, yes. Look, Gus Van Sant's a complicated character, and he's made a strange and dizzying assortment of films. You know, you use the box of chocolates metaphor sometime, and you can imagine his box of chocolates contains durian and treacle. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, he's made audience-off-putting films like Jerry and Elephant that are very stringent. He's made crowd pleasers like Goodwill Hunting and To Die For, which fits nicely between something very crowd pleasing and a little more crafty and experimental. Mm. He's made things like Psycho 98, which is a shot for shot remake. And sometimes you wonder what what is this really clever, really multi-talented director finding in a film that resonates with him. Gus Van Sant's from Portland. I lived for Portland in several years. I read Callahan's cartoons when I was there. And so I can see the appeal from there. You see the local landmarks. You see his interest in um, gay characters, you know, with Jonah Hill's character who uh, suffers from HIV. And I wonder if some of this sort of side paths as such sort of lost sight. I mean, over 20 years he's been developing this film, and Robin Williams was originally supposed to play Mm -hmm. the lead character. And then when Robin Williams passed away, uh, it precipitated this reunion with Joaquin Phoenix, who first appeared with Gus Van Sant to die for, and uh, after 23 years apart, they're back together. But it, it does feel a bit overdeveloped and heavy on the addiction and light, perhaps, on the day-to-day realities, and also some of the anarchy that really Callahan embodies. I feel like there's a bit of a pleasant veneer of that sort of goodwill hunting esque kind of what, here, quality to someone it. someone who's flawed but we're, but endearing anyway, that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, and even just sort of the sun-dappled photography. And, and you said that made it more pleasing to you. And mm. I, I think, to me, that shaves off some of the rough edges of Callahan's personality that the film could have used a little bit more of. Look, I didn't want to walk out. I found it interesting enough on a moment-to-moment to stay with it, and I wouldn't de-recommend it, but... Uh, and it's certainly not as terrible as, as some of the low points in his career. Whereas I probably would actively recommend it, certainly as being um, a really accessible Gus Van Sant movie, if that's what one's going for, but also because Joaquin and Jonah in particular, and Jack, all three J names, uh, are yeah. all terrific and, and really engaging, entertaining performances. So I think this one probably, if you'll excuse the terrible pun that's about to come, probably has legs. Oh, dear. <laughs> Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. <laughs> 